All right, a couple weeks back on the program, we talked again with our number one sports correspondent and I think our number one uh, guest, the person we've had on more than any other, Sean Mitten. It's our pleasure to say, welcome back, Sean. Thank you. Who's your number two sports guest? I want to meet that person and beat them to death. (laughs) We don't have any other sports person, I think, besides you. (laughs) Okay, then I'm safe. All right. Uh, but you know, let's let's take a let's take a little digression outside of sports. I know you're a big movie fan, and mm-hmm. I know that uh, you are quite distressed, as are we, by the passing of the late great Harold Ramis. Let's talk a little bit about his work. Probably one of the greatest when it comes to writing and directing. And for folks that I'm sure by now everybody knows everything he's been involved in, but I'll bet you that before that obit came out, people had no idea how involved he was with some of the all-time greatest comedies. Ever. My all-time favorite movie. Whether I'm embarrassed to say it or not, it's Ghostbusters. Every single line in that movie I can quote in my sleep. But then after that, you know, you've got Animal House, which he which wrote, he co-wrote helped, with yep, Deb Kenny exactly, and someone exactly. else I can't remember. But did yeah. I mean just did some of the greatest the greatest movies ever in the seventies, eighties, and nineties and and he was the guy who would save the best lines for his friends. When you watch movies right. like Ghostbusters or Groundhog Day or something, you know, he always saved the best lines for for Bill Murray because he knew that Bill could deliver them the best. So he was um, not only, you know, a great director and a great writer, but smart enough to know what his limits were and kind of let the let the main guys take the best lines. Right. And, you know, people in, in show business are notorious for, for doing the opposite, for true. being hogs. Very true. I mean, a lot of comic... We're com- talking to you, Mel Gibson. <laughs> I'm thinking of comedians. There was a little piece recently on Mark Evanier's uh, blog, which probably the only one we read regularly for this program, talking about the late, great Jack Benny, and that Benny at one point decided that he should acknowledge all of his writers, and he gave them, like, a credit in all the work he did. And all the other comedians were 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 ticked at him. <laughs> Red Skelton apparently at one point told an interview that uh, the things he said came directly from God which I think caused his writers the next week to when he showed up, they put a note just saying like, uh, let God give you the lines, Red, kind of thing. Can you imagine people in today's world giving credit to somebody else? I mean, that's the last thing that anybody would do. Well, and, and, and Ramus, like Jack Benny before him, was a guy willing to like uh, share the spotlight. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, he he was uh, he had his roots back at Second City and Groundlings and all that kind of stuff. And and he was never, from what I read about him, he was never the funniest guy. But he was no matter where he went, he was always the leader. I thought one of the most interesting things um, at the Academy Awards, Bill Murray gave him some props at the Academy Awards. But the last thing I heard about the two of those guys. Harold Ramis could never figure it out, but Bill Murray was super pissed at him for some reason later in life. And Harold Ramis, when he was interviewed, said he has no idea why Bill Murray was angry at him. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe some point Bill Murray will come out in an interview and, and explain why. But the last five, six years, they never talked to each other. That's that's horrible to hear. You know? Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of artists tend to be temperamental. I Well, Bill <laughs> Murray, you know, you could look at a guy like Bill Murray whose career basically was shot, and then he did... Um, the uh, the movie over in Japan. Uh, anyway, after that, you know, he got into a, a different mode in terms of acting, and his career has since kind of rebounded. But uh, without a guy like Harold Ramis giving him those great lines to deliver, who knows where he would be at this well, point? Well, what is it about 
show business, Hollywood, etc., where the writers are always the low man on the totem pole. If they're not churning out some great lines, no matter who this actor is, he's gonna, he's just not gonna have it. It's, 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 it's the writers that degenerate this great stuff. It is, and the problem now is there are fewer independent studios, and there's more and more pressure on these guys. I mean, you think about how many studios are left that actually produce big-time movies, and there's a half dozen of them, and then you've got a few independents. So the the pressure is even on these guys even more to deliver those lines. They have to be funnier. They have to be, whenever you're doing a, a preview of the movie, they have to be in the preview of the movie. They have to really resonate with an audience, and there's just all kinds of pressure on these guys now. Well, whether we're talking about movies or television or plays or whatever, people will say, like, geez, that was a great line by Groucho Marx. Well, somebody chances are somebody wrote that line for Groucho or wrote <laughs> that line for Johnny Carson. Yep. Yep. And when you think of some of the classic, I mean, we could sit here and I could probably for the next hour and a half bore you to tears with every line from Animal House, from Ghostbusters, from some of the, from Caddyshack, you know, these, these, in fact, we were, again, we were talking about this before the show. Very few movies anymore have lines where you can just 20 years later, they're still funny. 20 years later, you can still tell it to your buddy and everybody right. chuckles. Right. You know, you think of the airplane movies and right. you think of Caddyshack right. and you think of Ghostbusters, Animal House. They don't make movies like that. And I don't mean to, I'm not just saying that because I'm going to turn 50 this year. I'm saying the fact of the matter is they just do not make movies like that anymore. It's <laughs> Churnum and Burnham. Um, it's either a high budget movie with six bajillion things blowing up in it. Or it's a little indie movie that nobody's ever going to see. But you just don't find movies like that anymore. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I just pine for the, the moments of Four Season and F. 1.8. Congratulations, Kroger. You're the top of the Delta Pledge class. <laughs> the funniest one second of the whole movie is the, is the, is the shot, that, the look that Belushi shoots him right at that moment. There's that, and when I, when I, you know, if you want to go, you want to sit here and do Caddyshack for the next, you know, here he is, Cinderella story here at Augusta. <laughs> The Stormy Reserve Augusta crowd is now going crazy, you know. Oh, we got all of that one. Just, hey, you scratched my anchor. When they're asking Chevy Chase in the locker room, so how do you measure yourself against other golfers? By height. So, I mean, just classic one-liners that they just don't have anymore. No, they really don't. You know, one thing we've talked about doing this program for many years is, is not just talk about the great comedies, the great the great classics that uh, that we all love, but uh, but focus more on... The great scenes of the great classics and do maybe a show we talk about 10 or 12 of those fall down funny moments. Oh, we could do that right now. I mean, I think Animal House has a half a dozen in them. I, I mean, do you think about uh, John Belushi going through the food line uh, at the cafeteria? Smashing or, the guitar. I was just going to say, see, we think along the same lines. The guy's, I gave my love a flower, and he just takes the guitar. What's really sad is uh, a lot of the kids today have absolutely no idea what we're talking about because they're too worried about uh, if yeah, Justin well, Bieber's going to— go, They better go get those on Netflix and take a look at them. <laughs> they're worried about if Justin Bieber's going to go to jail or not. Sean Minton, always a pleasure, sir. Come back soon. My pleasure. Thank you. One final item today's program. Recent study by the University of Virginia psychologist Joseph Allen reveals that being popular as a teenager doesn't mean smooth sailing as an adult. In fact, this decades-long study found that stereotypical cool teens are more likely to stumble socially and have drug and alcohol problems in their 20s. Apparently, researchers interviewed 184 7th and 8th graders to identify these social strivers. Those who date at a young age have good-looking friends and are defiant of authority. The researchers then followed up by speaking with their parents and their friends at age 22 or 23 and noted that 
Compared to their peers, these adult strivers had 45% higher rates of alcohol and drug problems and 22% higher rates of criminal behavior. Their ability to have positive relationship was judged 24% lower. Anyway, it looks like Debo was onto something with we're through being cool, eh? Doggone it, we're out of time again. Our thanks to Sean Minton and our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>